0: All right, we're in Mark chapter six. We're going back now to our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the Gospel of Mark after the Christmas season. We're in Mark chapter six. We're gonna look at verses 14 through 29. So open your Bible, navigate on your tablet or your phone. Uh, If you are connected to the internet, you can go to transcript.calvaryhanford.com and uh, follow along with the transcript. You can subscribe to our transcripts and have it delivered to your email every Saturday morning and uh, all kinds of good stuff to get you in the word of God. We have a podcast. We have everything. Anything that anybody has, we have. So we're in Mark chapter six and the topic there... Herodias sends out her daughter to perform a lewd dance for Herod with the goal of having John the Baptist executed. The title of our message, Dirty Dancing. Let's have a word of prayer. Or what else would you call it? Father, thank you so much for bringing us to this place. I pray that our hearts would pay attention to the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he seeks to bring your word deep within Show us the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, the forgiveness of our sins. As we'll see at the end of this study, Lord, how we've been uh, sanctified and justified and had our sins washed away, or can if we're not Christians. And so bless this time that we've decided to spend with you, Lord, and that you've drawn us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Growing up, one of my favorite shows, Get Smart. How many of you are fans of Get Smart? It followed the madcap adventures of secret agent Maxwell Smart, also known as 86, who worked for control and who fought against chaos. chaos. That's right. In addition to introducing the world to the first Android phone, a shoe phone. I'm not sure who's on security today, yeah. (laughs) The show created quite a few catchphrases that are still thrown around today. After causing yet another disaster for the chief, Max would offer this apology. Sorry about that, chief, remember? When agents of chaos would call his bluff, Max would offer another more unbelievable bluff saying, would you believe... When he found himself in a dangerous situation, Max would exclaim, and loving it. My all-time favorite catchphrase, missed it by that much, used whenever one of his schemes miserably failed. Now, reading our text today, we're gonna encounter King Herod, and the thing that strikes me the most are the squandered opportunities he had to receive the Lord. You could summarize it by saying he missed it by that much. Why did he miss it? And we're gonna see forces from within him and surrounding him that exerted pressure against the gospel that eventually hardened Herod's heart to God's love and to his amazing grace. Those same pressures exist today exerting their destructive influence on every non-believer you know. And those same pressures can still trip us up as believers if we are not cautious I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, falsehoods exert pressure on you to disobey God. And number two, the flesh exerts pressure on you to disobey God. Let's take a look first of all at what we're calling falsehoods in verses 14 through 20. How many Herods were there anyway? It seems like you're always reading about some Herod and and it's a little bit confusing. Well, the first of the Herods in the Bible is often known as Herod the Great. He's the one who sought to kill Jesus by slaughtering all the infant boys. The son of Herod the Great was Herod Antipas. Antipas simply means the son of the father, but we know him as Herod Antipas. He was the Herod that we're going to be talking about today. Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, was he who persecuted the church in Jerusalem and had the apostle James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, put to death by the sword and who had Peter arrested. Agrippa's son, Herod Agrippa II, had dealings with the apostle Paul. He was instrumental in saving Paul from being tried and imprisoned in Jerusalem by the Jews who hated his testimony that Jesus was their Messiah. Agrippa, out of consideration for Paul being a Roman citizen, allowed Paul to defend himself, thereby giving Paul the opportunity to preach the gospel to all that were assembled and sending him up the chain of command to preach to many of Rome's leaders. Now, after Agrippa II, the family falls out of favor with Rome and you don't read about any more Herods. Herod Antipas, called King Herod by Mark, wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. The word tetrarch signifies someone who governs a fourth part of a kingdom. Here's what happened. His father, Herod the Great, divided his large kingdom into four parts and bequeathed them to his sons, and that action was then confirmed by the Roman Senate. And so Herod Agrippa, or Herod Antipas, not a king, but he liked to be called king. Emperor Augustus actually denied the title king to him, but goaded by his ambitious wife, Herod kept pressing for that title again and again until he so offended the emperor that he was dismissed as a traitor. He was a wannabe king. In that respect, Herod is a good example of all non-believers. We are born sinners, separated from God. We wanna be king, at least in our own lives, and we think that we can be, but it always turns out that you have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan was right, if you're familiar with that old song. You gotta serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. And so we'd like to be kings, we wanna be kings, but if you're not serving Jesus Christ, if you haven't given your life to him, then you're really serving the devil, taken captive by him to do his will. Now, when we last saw Jesus, he had sent out his 12 disciples, two by two, to teach to perform miracles. Word of their activity reached King Herod. And so in verse 14, now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now, it's important we don't pass over the fact that King Herod heard of Jesus. Sometimes we're so anxious to get to a part of the story that we miss some important things. And this phrase, he heard of Jesus, very important. There are two important truths, at least two in that observation. The first is that even though the work was being done by his disciples, Herod heard about Jesus, not about them. In other words, they were ministering to people in a way that brought glory to the Lord and not to themselves. It doesn't say Herod heard about Peter and John, disciples of Jesus who were doing a great work, casting out demons and healing the sick. It says he heard that Jesus was at work. And that's always our goal, is it not, as servants of the Lord, so that people will know that Jesus is at work through us. If you are overlooked and ignored, and nobody calls attention to your service to the Lord, praise the Lord for that. You don't need to be recognized, it's better off if you're anonymous. Uh, You might wanna change your name to John Doe or Jane Doe so that nobody can really figure out who you are spiritually, and just serve the Lord with gladness, and and all of us, you know, we wanna be patted on the back, we like encouragement. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that, But you shouldn't want that, and you certainly don't need that. You want Jesus to get the credit and the glory because you know what? You're not really doing anything unless he's doing it through you, and so he ought to get the credit and the glory. So that's a first point. The second point, the fact that Herod had heard of Jesus establishes something we can overlook since he was such a bad character in the Bible, and that is that Herod heard the gospel and could have been saved. In fact, we'll see multiple opportunities, precious opportunities for Herod to repent and receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Our God is all about saving people. The most wicked people are no exception. They're not too far gone. Jesus died for them too, and you'd be surprised probably if you knew the extent of God's efforts to reach them. You might recall Manuel Noriega, the military dictator of Panama from the 1950s about till 1990. At some point after he was removed from power, he became a Christian. Evangelist Luis Palau reported that the only things in his prison cell were an exercise bike, a cot, and a table with a Bible resting on it. And all this once evil man could talk about was what God had done in his life while he was there in solitary confinement. And so the Lord is interested in saving. Mark decided to catch up his readers on the plight of John the Baptist. Herod proposes that Jesus is John risen from the dead. Now we haven't read about his death yet, but Mark's original audience already knew that Herod had John imprisoned and executed. It was common knowledge. And so um, he makes reference to it and then he's gonna give us the backstory verse 15 and 16. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, no, no, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Now, we tend to read this as if Herod and company are superstitious morons. Who would believe any of those things? But the truth is, people still suggest all manner of false identities for Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the uh, characteristic of the cults. This is their calling card. They have a false identity of who Jesus really is. We know him as God come in human flesh who died on the cross, rose from the dead and who's coming again. But the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is actually Michael, the archangel. They say he was the first creation of God. They say he came to earth as a man, died on a stake, and rose from the grave, but invisibly as a spirit. Then he returned invisibly to, of course, Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) To head up the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And, and yet, how many thousands and multiplied thousands of people believe that falsehood about Jesus Christ? Mormons, the Church of Jesus of Latter-day Saints, teach that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. He was once a human being like you and like I, but through good works, he evolved spiritually to become a God. You know, God can become a man, but man cannot become God. It just... It, I think you know that. But Mormons, they have a different view, a false view of Jesus. Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy, say that Jesus was only a man and that Christ is the divine idea. When I was in college, I used to act like I understood concepts like this because it makes you smart. And so Christ is the divine idea. He never did any miracles. He simply showed people their mental illusions of sin and evil and illness and disease. And so if you're diseased today, if you're sick, it's an illusion. <laughs> people, people believe this. And, and so... Uh, We're just as moronic today as they were in the first century, apparently, believing these falsehoods about the person and work of Jesus Christ. All these and all the others, the philosophies and the psychologies and the religions, they are the doctrines of demons, falsehoods that keep billions of people from seriously searching the scriptures to see that Jesus is God come in human flesh. In this most important issue of all things, eternal life, people will grab at a straw and say, well, you're telling me about Jesus but I think he's the spirit brother of Satan, so there. Or these guys think he's, it. no one knows who he is and they were, they're ready to camp out on some false idea rather than be drawn to the forgiveness of their sins. Falsehoods are a mighty weapon in the spiritual warfare for the souls of men and women. I'm sure you all know someone who dismisses the claims of the gospel because of some false idea. You might be a person this morning who is holding on to some false idea. May they drug you to church today or you're not quite sure why you're here, but you have some idea that you don't need to really believe in Jesus Christ because you're holding on to something scientific or something philosophic or something uh, that is other than biblical Christianity. Now, Herod executed John, and we're gonna see that backstory. Verse 17, Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. God's law prohibits adultery and incest. And by marrying his brother Philip's wife, Herod was guilty of both of those sins. And uh, John would call him on the carpet for it. And Herodias had had enough of that. And as we'll see, she wanted John dead, but uh, she was able to convince Herod to arrest him at least. John preached the repentance of sin. And so he looked at Herod, didn't care whether he was a king or a peasant, He said, you are living in sin with your brother Philip's wife uh, and you need to repent of that. The message of repentance is missing in many contemporary evangelical churches. A recent scientific research survey came to the following conclusion about those born from the 1980s till about the year 2000. You uh, read about them in literature as the millennials or the millennial generation. And so if you were born in the 80s up to around the year 2000, you're a millennial. Here's what the article says. It says, millennials do not feel guilt and shame the way older generations do. As such, they do not respond to what one person referred to as fire and brimstone scare tactics. Telling them that they are sinners and they need to repent, this author says, doesn't work. Millennials respond to evangelism that tells them that the world is broken And it is only through Jesus that it can be fixed. Does that sound at all like the message of John the Baptist? Preaching out in the wilderness, wearing camel skin and eating locusts and honey. The world's a broken place. We need to fix the world and Jesus can help us. I'm on board with that. Jesus didn't preach that the world was broken and needed to be fixed. His apostles after him didn't do that. The church has never done that. But now all of a sudden we have a generation of people that can't be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't be told that they're sinners. They need to repent. They need to be told that the world we live in is a broken place. Hey, it's not just broken. It's gonna be destroyed. It's really broken, bad. It can't be put back together until people repent and come to the Lord, and then God will say, okay, I've done my work in that situation, now I'm gonna destroy this world and rebuild it. And so um, I'm not saying that our methods can't or should not change, they can and they should, but we cannot tamper with the message itself. The message is timeless, the gospel is universal, it's applicable in every culture to any status to all levels of intellect to every generation to everyone everywhere it's timeless as i just said as the power of god unto salvation i mean we have a history now of looking back on the gospel for over 2000 years and we see it wherever it goes in power whatever culture whatever they believe whatever their language whatever ages whatever anything it works It's the salvation of men's souls. It's an amazing message that we need not tamper with. And so verse 19, therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. You've heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger. Well, the trouble is people do want to kill the messenger. All the time in the news there are stories about efforts of non-believers to try to silence the word of God. There's always some city council or public school district that's being sued for having in God we trust or uh, the 10 commandments on its property or some such thing. It's in a sense an effort to kill the messenger only they're using a legal way of doing it. Now John was imprisoned and his cell was right there in Herod's palace I guess you'd call it. The indication is that Herod and John dialogued, speaking often. And so Herod hung out in this uh, palace that he had, and um, in it was the dungeon where they kept prisoners, and John was bound in the dungeon, and Herod would go and visit him all the time. And Mark says, Herod did many things and heard John gladly. Now, don't pass over that as if it's not meaningful. The gospel was stirring Herod's heart. It was glad news and it actually motivated certain behavioral changes. Now it's gonna turn out that the gospel wasn't falling on good soil, but don't discount its effects so quickly. God is not willing any should perish, and that included Herod, it even included Herodias. And so there was something going on. Herod wanted to hear what John had to say. And you know that John stuck to the message. He didn't, he didn't say, well, you know, out there in public, I have to tell you to repent. But here, I'm just gonna tell you that the world is a broken place. No, John has, if anything we know about John, he had a one-track mind. Herod, it's you again. Have you divorced your wife yet? Have you left Herodias because you're living in sin? Those sins are adultery and incest and you can't inherit the kingdom of God. But it says Herod heard him over and over again gladly, and it was affecting some change in him, very interesting. Not everyone will be saved, but we need to remind ourselves that everyone is a candidate for salvation. Herods and Herodias's are all around us, often in positions of power or authority. We see in this story that even though he was bound within his prison cell, God's servant never wavered from delivering the message of salvation. John was the person in this story with real power, not this wannabe king or his wicked wife. Sure, they could do things to John this side of eternity, but we're not interested in this side of eternity. We're interested in the other side and what happens then. And so John continued his preaching in prison, uh, trying to reach Herod with the gospel. Now, secondly here, verses 21 through 29, the flesh exerts pressure on you to disobey God. There's a good description of sinners in 1 Corinthians chapter six. It starts in verse nine, Paul the apostle writing, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous is a word that describes the typical non-believer it's synonymous with being a non-believer. A non-believer has no right to stand before God because we are born separated spiritually from God, dead in our trespasses and sins. So Paul is gonna talk about the unrighteous, he's gonna talk about the non-believer, and here's how he describes them, verses nine and 10 of 1 Corinthians six. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's quite a list of sins. It isn't exhaustive, it is representative. These are the kinds of things the unrighteous do. These are the kinds of things characteristic of non-believers, Not every non-believer does all of them. There are more sins that we could list, but Paul's just saying, hey, the non-believer lives in this realm of sin and, and some of it's pretty ugly. If I think about my life BC, before Christ, a lot of those words would characterize me. Sadly, if we're honest, even after getting saved, we find those things lurking in our flesh, rising up when we let them, to our spiritual detriment. Whether you're a non-believer given over to such things or a believer who willingly gives yourself over to them, Herod and Herodias will show you how awful and how evil the flesh really is. I mean, when we read this and we see this episode and and really see how ugly it is, what the Holy Spirit is saying is, and so is your flesh whenever you give into it regardless of how far you take it. And so that keep that in mind. Um, I guess we should pause and give a working definition of what the Bible means by the flesh. Scripture uses the term in a morally evil sense to describe uh, your unredeemed humanness. And so you get saved, and you find that there's still something within you that has a propensity to sin, that has a disposition to sin, you still want to fulfill uh, certain lusts and cravings, and there's this struggle between that flesh and the spirit. Now, we might struggle to properly define the flesh, but if you're a believer, you immediately know what I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul once put it this way, this is from Romans chapter seven, he says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, for I want to do good, but I can't do it. I do not do the good I want, I do the evil I don't want. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. Now that doesn't mean Paul is saying, Uh, the devil made me do it or I couldn't help myself. He's saying that when I sin, it's because there's something that remains in me after I've been born again that drives me in that direction if I don't check it. And then he says, so I find the law that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. And if you're a Christian, you know all about this. You struggle with this all the time. You beat yourself up even over it. You think, man, why did I just do that? Why can't I just walk with the Lord and there's this struggle? And, and the, the, the point here today is that all of this is far worse than you think, your flesh that is. It looks like this sordid party that Herod threw for his birthday. If we could pull the mask back on those indulgences that we make in our own flesh, it would look like this. Verse 21, then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. Now Herod had been given many amazing opportunities to be saved. He had personal audiences with one of the greatest men to ever live, John the Baptist. He let those opportunities pass and now he finds himself in a place where the flesh finds opportunity to destroy him. Started off innocently enough as a birthday party, but it quickly got out of hand. Verse 22, and when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. Uh, This was a men's only event. After they were good and drunk, Herod called for the dancing girls. You need to think of this as a strip club because that's what was going on. It's kind of an R-rated study this morning. And so this is a gentleman's club where these ladies would not have any clothes on. Now to his surprise, Herodias sent out her own daughter who commentators say was pretty young, certainly a young teenager, Stop for a minute. Seriously, Herodias, you sent your teen daughter to strip at a stag birthday party for your husband and his friends? Not exactly mother of the year material. Don't lose sight of the point we're making. Your flesh, left unchecked, is capable of all manner of evil. Herodias had been seething with rage and hatred and murder against John the Baptist And I don't know what went on in her mind, but I know what goes on in the mind of sinners because I are one. And I can see how that clouded her judgment into thinking I'll send Herodias out to do my bidding and so what that she has to dance naked. The end justifies the means. I'll be able to finally kill John the Baptist and then we can be one big happy family. Once John isn't telling my husband that he needs to divorce me because we're committing adultery and incest, we can go on that vacation to the Caribbean that I've been wanting to take. You know, that kind of a thing. And this is how the flesh operates. We lie to ourselves. Now, Herod could have put a stop to this before it got out of hand. Instead, one compromise kept leading to another and another until he blurts out, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. I mean, you understand he could have said, whoa, time out, get out of here. You're far too young, you're my daughter. I don't want to watch you dance naked in front of my friends. Get up, get out. Sometimes, sometimes it's the Joseph strategy. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Potiphar's wife kept trying to have sex with him. Finally, she set it up one day so that all the servants were gone. She grabbed him by the garment, said, have sex with me, and he says, oh no, no, no. And he ran, leaving his garment behind. Ended up in prison over it. Sometimes you just have to run. But Herod, he he let it play. And he says, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Now, obviously that's a stupid thing to say, but I want you to think about it in a spiritual sense for a minute. And it'll make sense. Here's what I mean. When we start giving in to the flesh, we may as well be saying to our flesh, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Uh, I've already given in a little bit here, so what else do you want? What else can we do to mess up our life? And that's kind of what Herod is into here. Now, don't get to that point by giving in. You can say no to your flesh and yes to God every step of the way. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. You know what, this is interesting because we always think there is a boundary. We always think we're gonna sin to a certain point, but we would certainly never go beyond that. I've known so many guys over the years I kind of am flirting at work, but I would never do anything about it. I mean, it because it kind of feels good to flirt. You know, I haven't flirted for a long time. Uh, My wife and I don't really flirt; it's not something we do. But you know, I can flirt with my secretary or the girls in the you know office or whatever and stuff. Because I know I would never do anything else up to half my kingdom. And so this is really kind of making more sense to me now than it ever did before. People give their testimonies, and it can almost sound as if there was something to be admired about how drunk they were, how stoned they got, or the extent of their debauched activities. Here's Herod, drunk, overcome by lust, completely ruled by his sinful passions. Uh, If you give your testimony, spend more time talking about Jesus and less time talking about how awful you were. Uh, I mean, you know, God saves to the uttermost, but it doesn't mean that you have to get to the guttermost, as they say, and say, hey, I was so bad. There's always somebody who has a worse testimony than you, but I really don't care about it. I just care about what Jesus did. Now think of your flesh with Herod in mind. Whenever you give into it, no matter how slightly, it's on a par with Herod being drunk, lusting after his wife's teenage daughter. It's ugly and perverted. That's where it's leading you to. It, 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 that's, that's what's down the road if you give in. And so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Had Herod simply obeyed God's law, he would never have found himself in this terrible plight. Don't commit adultery with Herodias and you never get to this point. Don't host a kegger and you won't be compromised by getting drunk. God gives us rules as boundaries for our own good. We break them at our own peril. Grace will abound if we turn to the Lord, but we must never sin so that grace will abound. So if you find yourself in sin this morning, if the Lord is uh, ministering that to you, repent and grace will abound. But don't sit there and think, well, I, I hear what you're saying, Gene, but I, I'm, I'm safe in this little bubble of sin that I've created for myself. I can, I can hang out there and if I do sin, grace will abound. That's never the right way of thinking. Herodias wanted John dead right then. She called for his execution as the big finale to the party so that Herod would not be able to change his mind. The flesh always wants to be satisfied right now. What do I want right now? I want the head of John. I don't want you to say you're gonna kill him. I want his head right now so that I know he's dead. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter just, I don't want you to imagine it, but imagine a teenage girl coming into a drunken party and saying, hi, I'd like the head of this holy man on a platter where I can take him to my mom. This is ugly, people, but this is our flesh. I don't think Herodias was sending her daughter to Sunday school. She was teaching her to strip, and she was ready as a young teen to do so and to be her accomplice in murder. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he didn't want to refuse her. John preached repentance. Herod was exceedingly sorry, but that's not repentance. You see, a lot of times pastors and ministers and commentators would say, well, there's a difference between repentance and sorrow. Well, here's a good example of it. He was sorry. I, didn't, I don't really wanna kill John the Baptist, but what do you want me to do? I'm, my guests, they'll think I'm a lame king. I'm gonna have to kill him. No, he could have repented then and said, no, you know what? I'm done with all of this. I'm ready to walk away from being the Tetrarch. I'm not really even a king. I shouldn't be married to you. I shouldn't, this, none of this should be going on. I repent, but instead, I'm really sorry, but uh, call for the executioner. Let's get this done. Herod gave in to peer pressure. That's a powerful force the devil wields against us for us to conform to this world. Immediately, the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Now, the phrase, I want his or her head on a platter, all too common in the English language. I don't know if you've ever used that or heard that. I went to that meeting and they handed me my head on a platter. Let's not use that anymore. It's about John and his execution. It's not an illustration. It really happened. Now, I'd like to know how this ended. Did the guests applaud? Oh, <laughs> bravo. Well played, Herodias. Did they disperse quietly? Did they think it was weird? What did Herod say to Herodias after he sobered up? I'd like to hear the next day morning conversation. Hey, what was all that about? I mean, how do you, how do you talk to each other after that? And what did Herodias do with John's head? I mean, the whole thing is weird. In the end, it doesn't matter because the aftermath could not have been good. Their flesh had brought a terrible destruction into their household and into their souls. However, don't forget the opening verses of the story. Remember, we have backed up to give a history. After the fact that we've just read, Herod was still hearing about Jesus. After all this, he still had opportunity to be saved. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and they laid it in a tomb. Bad news travels faster. Good for these guys risking themselves to give John a proper burial. Here's a question. Who was really dead in this story from a Christian point of view? Well, John was in Hades, The moment his head was removed from his body, his spirit was in Hades in the paradise compartment that is called Abraham's bosom in scripture. He was awaiting the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After that, he would accompany all the righteous saints to heaven to await the Lord's second coming and his own resurrection from the dead. Herod was dead. Herodias was dead. They were dead in trespasses and sins separated from God. They were dead though they lived. Should they die in that condition, and we can be pretty certain they eventually did, they too would find themselves in Hades. But their address in Hades was not paradise, it was punishment. And they are still there, awaiting the Lord's future thousand-year kingdom of heaven on the earth. After it ends, they, along with all the unrighteous dead from all time, will be raised to a judgment of sin. Having rejected the gospel, their names will not be found in the book of life. They will be cast alive to be an eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire, the second death. And so John was killed, but he wasn't really dead. He was alive, he is alive. He was in paradise, he is in heaven. Herod and Herodias were spiritually dead and they died the second death and are awaiting eternal punishment. Now, when we started to discuss the flesh, I read a passage from 1 Corinthians. Let me read it again, but there's a verse that comes after it, too. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. How'd you like to hear that in church? Just when you're saying, yeah, those people, they're terrible. Oh, wait a minute, that was me. 10 minutes ago, 10 years ago, whenever it was. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. God finds you in verses nine and 10 and puts you in verse 11 when you receive his son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. Your sins were as scarlet, but because Jesus died for them on the cross, they are white as snow, You are sanctified, meaning set apart from the world to serve the Lord. And a big part of being sanctified is having his Holy Spirit indwelling you so that you can yield to God and not to the flesh. You are justified means that not only are you not guilty before God, you've been declared righteous by God. Jesus took upon himself your sins and he gives you in exchange his righteousness. Falsehoods abound. And if anything, they're gonna be multiplied in the last days in which we live. There are a lot more ways of people being stupid today than there were 2,000 years ago in terms of what they believe and don't believe about Jesus. And they're a a big part of satanic spiritual warfare. The non-believers that you're dealing with, or if you're a non-believer here today, uh, you're all wrapped up in these falsehoods that once you get saved, you look back and you think, that was just silly, that was stupid. Why did I believe that? Why? Because you didn't want to repent from your sin. Because you like darkness rather than light. Because you didn't want to give up the situation that you're in. Because, like Herod, you were unwilling to say, you know, this is wrong. It's clearly wrong according to God's law. It's not even a gray area. This is adultery. This is incest. I have to repent. But instead, I kind of like Herodias. I'm in love with her as if she was some prize. I mean, she was a murderer who sacrificed her own daughter for her own advancement. That's the kind of woman you wanna spend the rest of your life with? I don't think so. And that's why God gives us these boundaries. And then the flesh, a constant enemy. It's the enemy within, tempted by the world and the devil. Nevertheless, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can overcome the flesh. You can keep it down. You can put it to death as you yield to the spirit of God, Uh, but you need to take it seriously. And I think that's the point of this illustration as we're using it as such. Your flesh, it's far uglier than you think. It's not to be played around with. Don't let it out for a day in the sun. Let's have a word of prayer.